Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stuart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Where do things stand in the war in Ukraine, and how will Ukraine fight on if the aid stops? That's the topic for today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Max Bergman. I'm the director of the Europe-Russia Eurasia program here at CSIS, and we have an all-star panel to discuss what is, I think, one of the most timely topics uh, in the world right now. Uh, Joining me today is Maria Snegovaya, directly to my left, our senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia here at CSIS. Also joining us is Michael Kimmage, a senior associate non-resident fellow here at CSIS and chair of the Department of History at Catholic University. And our special guest today, not affiliated with CSIS, uh, is Michael Kaufman, senior fellow at the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on the Russian military and Eurasian security issues. And of course, for everyone to be part of this panel, your first name had to start with M. So thank you all for for being here to sort of close out the year. Michael, I wanted to maybe start with you. Uh, you've been going to Ukraine frequently. Your commentary on uh, the state of the war in Ukraine, I think, has been invaluable, uh, not just to folks here in Washington, but to to in Europe and, and around the world. Uh, how do things currently stand uh, in in the war with the war today? Uh, where are we? Is 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 Russia looking to go on the offensive? Uh, how do you see the kind of current state of play? Sure. Thanks, Max, for the invitation to be here. And it's good to be with with all of you again. Um, So let me try to kind of summarize where I think we are right now in the war. Uh, This at this point is a bit of a transitional period. The Ukrainian offensive effectively culminated probably sometime uh, around October. And I think largely was acknowledged as such by the Ukrainian commander in chief, Zeluzhin. since then, fighting has gone on, and I think the fighting has taken on more of a positional or attritional character. Russia had attempted its own offensive you know, starting October 10th at Avdiivka and has been attacking along parts of the line and has tried to seize the initiative. And to some extent, Russia does have the initiative, but they do not, uh, uh, at this point, have any major breakthroughs or successes that they can point to. I think what we're going to see is a period of attritional fighting this winter, not too dissimilar to the period we saw this past winter, going from 2022 into 2023. Uh, that said, you know, next year is going to be a challenging year. Now, to some extent, Russia has some of the material advantage on, on its side. If we look at ammunition availability, maybe a bit equipment, and to a much lesser extent, uh, manpower. That being said, these advantages are not decisive. So the outcome is not going to be overdetermined. Like we shouldn't think of the Russian advantages as being deterministic. There's a whole host of things that Ukraine can do. But from my point of view, we are now in a transitional period. And a lot hinges on the choices people make. And what happens next year in terms of setting the trajectory for this war? I think I want to maybe leave it more open-ended mm-hmm. uh, in this opening conversation. Well, I want to ask you about the implications of, of aid in a second. But, you know, one of the things that Russia has done over the last year, and Maria, I uh, want your um, take on this as well, 
uh, has really increased its defense industrial output. Uh, I think Rusi, our colleagues at Rusi, have, have identified that Russia was producing roughly 40 long-range cruise missiles a month now. That's more than 100. Are, are you expecting Russia to try to do what it did last winter and bombard uh, Ukrainian cities and civilian infrastructure with a drone and, and missile barrage? Is that something that you're expecting? Have we seen that yet uh, this winter? And is that something that you're you're concerned about, at least in terms of Ukraine's uh, air defense munitions? Yeah, so the air defense picture is less talked about. But if you look at uh, the kind of two treadmills that we've been running on the whole time in this war, one of them has been artillery ammunition, which has been essential for Ukraine to sustain defensive efforts and to be able to mount offensives. The other one is air defense ammunition, interceptors for air defense and missile defense systems. So I do think we've already seen the beginning of a Russian strike campaign. It, it began in November with a fairly large drone strike. I think Russian military this time is trying to test saturation of the air defenses that have been provided by the West to Ukraine, but it's going to come after Ukrainian infrastructure again. So both Russian missile production and drone production has been increasing. They are licensed producing Iranian drones, the, the sort of various uh, uh, variations of Shahed. And as those stocks increase, the West has been working to try to improve the air defense picture in Ukraine as well. But in that regard, of course, Ukraine faces a dilemma. Ukraine is a very large country. Outside of Russia, it is the second largest country in Europe. And it's challenging to be able to defend key cities, critical infrastructure, electricity, water management, power plants, right? The things that people need in order to make it through the winter and also defend the front line. The front line of contact is about a thousand kilometers long. I hope people appreciate it's a very, very lengthy front and it's very difficult to provide air defense along the front line as well. And of course, Russia's trying to impose these dilemmas. So far, Ukraine has been able to manage the situation with Western assistance and has gotten through the past winter. But, you know, much of these things are contingent. You don't know how cold the winter is going to be, for example, and and, and what kind of stocks the Russians have or what kind of uh, reserves are available for Ukraine and air defense. I don't see the picture necessarily as dire, mm -hmm. but I do think it's a very important uh, aspect of, of the fight to look at beyond just what's happening at the front line. Maria, maybe you could um, talk a little bit about the, the state of the Russian economy and Russia's defense industry. We put out a report earlier this year called Out of Stock, which said that you know sanctions were, were playing a role in impacting Russia's ability to ramp up defense production. But it looks like in the intervening period over this year, they've been able to address that. How do you see that that current situation with Russia's defense industry and the, and the Russian economy? Yeah, in the hindsight, even if we pointed out a really remarkable flexibility of adjustment uh, to this current situation on both sides, to be fair, Russians, but I think Ukrainians also should be getting credit, uh, receiving credit for that. Having said that, uh, in the hindsight, it turns out that we underappreciated how um, successful Russia will be, at least uh, judging by the side indicators, and maybe um, I feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we certainly see uh, that Russia is adjusting very successfully to sanctions. The uh, overall export controls are not working to the extent that Russia now, according to, for example, Elena Rybakova, one of the top uh, notch economists, actually uh, is importing more of the sanctioned, I don't know, chips and related electronics than it did before the war started. Of course, uh, through third countries, as we know, Central Asia, China, other countries uh, that are assisting Russia in doing that. 
Also, unfortunately, there are no uh, good, reliable uh, estimates uh, that are more objective, but Russia itself is reporting a very uh, successful uh, increase in defense production. Uh, for example, according to Bloomberg's uh, reporting, uh, the Kremlin um, throughout the 2023 uh, projected the production of combat vehicles, aircraft, and ships to grow by more than 26%. And Rostec recently has reported that, for example, it increased production of tanks seven times light armed armored vehicles by 4.5 times and ulteriorly multiple launch rocket systems by 2.5 times. Also, there is a drone situation where it seems like the inflection point uh, was passed in the summer and right now Russia is surpassing Ukraine in production of drones, which, as we know, are highly important in this war. So combined, uh, this demonstrates that, at like, of course, again, these are the Kremlin estimates that should be uh, taken with a grain of salt. Having said that, we know that Russia is getting a lot of money from the oil. Uh, the oil dynamic has been uh, really favorable. We know that the projected uh, increase in the military expenses is percent of GDP next year is almost doubled from 3.9 to 6% of GDP. And all of that, unfortunately, um, seem, suggests that Russia is preparing for very successful perhaps offensive or at least doubling down in this war and it has resources to do that. When compared with the situation uh, in Ukraine and especially Western aid to Ukraine, unfortunately this dynamic looks a little gloomy for Ukraine. Mike, let me just turn back to you on, on that. Are, you, are we seeing on the battlefield effects of Russia having that material advantage? And do you think what are the prospects for U.S. and European uh, defense industrial uh, efforts to ramp up? I mean, I think that's occurring somewhat when it comes to 155 millimeter ammunition. But in general, there's, I think, a sense that we're not kind of matching Russia's defense mobilization. I guess, how do you see the kind of defense industrial side of this? Sure. So first, in terms of observed outcome on the battlefield, I think, fortunately, the Russian military has consistently chosen to attack prematurely before the force quality is there and before they're ready on the base of feeling like they have the numbers, they have the equipment, the artillery ammunition to do it. And these offensives have been unsuccessful. They've shown that with advantages they have, they're not sufficiently decisive, either in firepower, in force employment, and in tactics and the actual quality of the force. It takes time to restore quality of the force. And, and the army is not just equipment and ammunition. Um, on top of that, I think what, what one can observe is that uh, while it's true, Russia has substantially transitioned to a wartime economy and is now spending a significant amount of government revenue on defense industrial output and is actually using this as a primary vehicle to drive uh, okay. uh, manufacturing and, and, and sort of GDP growth. Uh, the, they still have significant issues with equipment. I think the numbers they put out are far too fanciful and they're counting way too much. In those numbers are counting equipment that they serviced and repaired, equipment they're pulling out of storage. The majority of the equipment they are still using, they're pulling out of warehouses. This, this is the Soviet legacy they inherited. They are increasing production of equipment in key categories, like missiles, for example, like drones, and, and, uh, and more modern tanks, like T90M, for example. But it's slow. But you can observe literally from satellite them building additional facilities along these complexes and assembly plants, meaning they're making the investments, the industrial capacities physically growing. They're starting to, to expand it. But I don't know if they will be able to translate that into significant battlefield gains next year. That very much remains to be seen. Okay, regarding the question on defense industrial mobilization. Yeah, so the Russian decisions were clearly made starting last fall when they went through with partial mobilization of personnel 
began to realize this is going to be a long war and started to actually convert the economy to this wartime footing, started making those choices that, that they, they were basically neglecting to make over the course of the first year. On the Western side, I think it's really only now started to occur that this is indeed going to be a long war. If you look at the U.S., yes, we made investments in artillery ammunition production. It's going a bit slower than expected, but it's a lot better than it was. We started the war making 14,000 main caliber artillery shells per month. Mm. We're now making 28,000, and we're going towards 36. That's pretty good, uh, I would say, for a year and a half's worth of work. Uh, Europeans cannot tell the same story at all. I just want to be clear on that. Uh, and I've been publicly clear that I think North Korea has given Russia more artillery ammunition than Europe has given Ukraine. That's just one category of munitions. I don't want to discredit all the things Europe has done for Ukraine. They've done a lot. They've done a lot of the sheer GDP. You know, these are great talking points that they've earned. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of material outcomes in a war that runs on artillery ammunition, air defense ammunition, drones, we're just seriously getting about the business of looking at this as a long war that requires a long-term strategy. And next year will require those investments in industrial capacity, both in Ukraine which increasingly can make drones, can make these systems, but more importantly in the West, as we're actually going to have to see and follow through, right? We cannot have, we cannot have a case where 13 months into the war, Europeans pledge a million artillery shells, and then they say that they can barely do half of that uh, by the end of, you know, over two years into this war, and then we'll see what comes in the third year. Like, we're just going to have to do, I think we're going to have to do a lot better if, if we're going to see, uh, if we're going to properly support Ukraine and see this conflict through. Michael, I want to turn to you. I mean, one of the questions I think right now that that I have is what what are kind of Putin's objectives in this war? I think there was perhaps a hope by some that if, you know, Ukraine's sort of counteroffensive didn't go as well as expected or it failed, however you want to categorize it. But but that's this would sort of sober up the Ukrainians to say, OK, well, we're not going to be able to achieve our our, our our goals on the battlefield and that now's the time for negotiations. But it, it doesn't seem like there's any interest coming from the Kremlin. How do you read kind of right now the kind of current diplomatic state of play? Is there a potential uh, negotiation here, especially if if uh, aid is 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 uh, potentially drying up from both the United States and Europe? Well, it's good to be agnostic about what we know, uh, which is quite <clears throat> little, little of an objective kind, but I think that we could begin the analysis with public media displays in Russia over the course of the last couple of weeks, where there have been a lot of victory laps uh, that Putin has been taking. Of course, he's <clears throat> running for president in March, so so part of this is is self promotion, and you know Putin has lots of incentives to say that the war is going very well, but they've really been pouring it on thick uh, in the Russian media that the West is crumbling. Uh, Ukraine is on its last legs and Russia is on the verge of achieving uh, victory. So it would be very difficult to reconcile that narrative with any kind of compromise or negotiation coming from the Russian side. Additionally, the 7th of October and its many complicated uh, after effects in the Middle East and globally, uh, I think one has to say, um, have rebounded to Russia's advantage, uh, not on the ground in the Middle East and not on the ground in Ukraine, but there are narratives that Russia is able to project now with greater confidence uh, that uh, I think are also hardening the Russian position, which was hard uh, to begin with. And then, of course, the optics, both in Europe and the United States, of political division, which is to a degree quite real. Uh, some of it is maybe fragmentary and momentary, but uh, it's hard to say that the EU and the U.S. Congress are firmly behind any one position uh, on the war. Those optics are also, I think, feeding into 
uh, a mood of self-confidence. So as I interpret it, it's sort of half projected, half theatrical, because I think that Russia has to know that it faces a huge number of real-life challenges in Ukraine and is very far from achieving its political uh, objectives. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think uh, Putin has multiple legs uh, on which to stand. And the ones that Maria mentioned about political economy uh, are also very uh, significant. So I think you have to infer from all of that that this is probably the worst time uh, in the war for any kind of serious negotiations. And Maria, um, I, you, there's a there's an election coming up in, in Russia. Uh, I'm curious what you uh, what your take is on kind of the the public mood inside of Russia when it comes to this war. Uh, is there any sort of softening of support, or is there a, a danger there for for Putin at least when it comes to kind of the public uh, opinion? I wouldn't frame it in terms of a danger. I think that Putin is feeling pretty comfortable when it comes to the public opinion, partly because the Kremlin was uh, quite apt at creating this, at, at adapting uh, to this new reality by committing a lot of resources, a lot of economic resources to uh, towards those families uh, that are directly or indirectly uh, participating in this war. Uh, this is the term that Vladislav Anazemtsev coined Smirtanov the economy of of death, in which uh, many of the families of the either either Russian soldiers or those who died in this conflict in this war, uh, they receive a lot of payments, and sometimes these are quite significant enough to, for example, purchase an apartment in a certain remote Russian region. Uh, plus, uh, when it comes to the elites, uh, despite the fact that many of them uh, lost because of the sanctions, right, inability to, for example, travel to the West, enjoy the luxurious lifestyles at court de jour and whatnot, uh, they are compensated uh, domestically through redistribution of property, which is very radical and unraveling in Russia right now, as many Western companies fled uh, the country as, as after the war began. These valuable resources are redistributed to uh, these groups. In addition to that, as we have discussed uh, with Michael, the military-industrial sector is getting a lot of uh, money, and that creates uh, their own stakeholders. As a result, last year alone, the number of dollar millionaires in Russia, despite these unprecedented sanctions from hell, increased by more than 10 percentage points. And uh, I'm afraid this dynamic will continue in the sense that there are a lot of new stakeholders that the war has created. Uh, this is, by the way, not unique to this war. Wars usually create stakeholders, and uh, this is likely to continue. Uh, so that is one uh, factor. Second, of course, there is a degree of war fatigue combined with the fact that Russia really experienced unprecedented losses in this war. I think by certain estimates, up to 300,000 people are incapacitated or dead on the Russian side, at least. This is by far to the best of our knowledge, exceeds really exceeds significantly the Afghanistan losses that have actually uh, contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And yet, we barely see any protest. Just recently, there were some developments. The wives of the mobilized Russians started uh, isolated protests, but those are quite marginal, and the Kremlin is trying to take them under control. Um, again, when it comes to the war fatigue, we have seen lately in the polls that the number of Russians who are 
in favor of peace talks has somewhat increased, but uh, with again with a Russian spin to it, mm-hmm. uh, these are the people who want to to keep everything that Russia gained in this war, so not any concessions without any concessions to Ukraine, and again those groups again do not uh, constitute the majority. It's um, perhaps like up to 30% of the of the population, the majority seems to fall, go with the flow. Uh, lastly, uh, Russia has a very pronounced electoral cycles. So uh, Michael has meant, uh, Mike Kimmich has mentioned uh, that Putin, as his re-election in uh, March 2024, in light of that, he's recently announced new redistribution to families uh, with multiple kids, etc., etc. That's very typical, but that certainly will be um, probably be enough to to sustain support. And last but not least, uh, this election, uh, every next election in Russia set their own record on degree of fraud. So this election is not going to be an exception. Uh, they are adopting all of the lessons learned from uh, the constitutional vote in 2020, inc- including extending the vote period for f- up to three days, voting outside of electoral precincts, uh, and of course, the internet-based, the so-called electronic voting, which makes any monitoring after of the, uh, any any, you know, watch observation of this election impossible. Uh, last but not the least, they also pretty much imprisoned or repressed most of the independent observers. So even if there still was, was somebody left who wanted to monitor the election, there's really no such people left uh, in the country. So this dynamic really makes things very comfortable for Putin. I think he has uh, really nothing to be scared of. Mike, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in briefly, and it's on the manpower issue. So I think the one area where Russia's principally challenged is manpower. It seems, and there are big error bars on this in terms of our knowledge of Russian losses and, and recruitment rates, but it's fair, definitely fair to say that their total casualties exceed 300,000. And of those, you can assume that maybe two-thirds or 70% are unrecoverable casualties. They invaded Ukraine, the large-scale invasion of, of February 2022, at peacetime force strength, which wasn't mobilized, so they were already at reduced strength. And a challenge they principally face, and I want to come at this because Marie made a great point, you know, these mothers protesting, it's not a big issue yet. It's a symptom of a problem. It's a symptom of a structural problem. Russia was able to alleviate the deficit of manpower with mobilization, and they can recruit enough men per month to compensate for their losses. But they don't have men to rotate the people they initially mobilized, the 300,000 people they mobilized. And then, so they've been staying at the front, and they've been at the front since last fall, right? And they're going to have to figure out a way to deal with that problem. And probably they're not going to address that until after the, the March election mm-hmm. because of the political challenge involved. But either they'll have to substantially increase recruitment, but regional quotas show that they're probably getting at most 25% of what the quotas were allocated to the regions for the for recruitment. So they're actually going to have to either double that somehow in terms of the results, which will be hard, or they're going to have to conduct another partial mobilization one way or another. I mean, you can mobilize production of artillery ammunition. You can, over time, start to solve defense industrial capacity problems. Russia is a very tight labor market. It has low unemployment. Most of the people with skills are employed, and there's a big deficit of them. And if you're going to sustain a war, an attritional war, yes, Russia has more people than Ukraine. I, I, on paper, we all agree on that mm-hmm. by a substantial amount. But once you get past that point and get into the nuts and bolts of what it takes to mobilize personnel and turn them into combat effective units, you start to see a lot of issues. And this is why Russia is struggling to translate those advantages into decisive outcomes. 
Right. I think it's a great point because Russia may be larger, but the, this war is not existential to the people of Russia while it is to Ukraine. And so the political willingness to mobilize is probably far greater, I would, I would say, on the Ukrainian side than on the Russian side. Right. And there's inherent dilemmas. If, if you mobilize people, then people, other people will leave the country, right? Russians will flee. Mm-hmm. But you also need those people for your defense industry as well. You need people with skills, right? So, so they're, they're, they're clearly balancing their own dilemmas. Yeah. Michael. I think there's another version of this problem, another way of stating what Michael has just said. And I very much agree with Maria's assessment that Putin has nothing to worry about at the present moment, December of, of 2023. But after the, uh, the election, and I'll go out on a limb and say that Putin will win the election in, in, in March 2024. After the Most election, <laughs> what you'll have is is endless Putinism. <clears throat> He's been in power since uh, year 2000. Uh, this is an astonishing long, astonishingly long period of time for anybody. So endless Putinism, I think, faces two problems, one of which Michael just mentioned. So if he has to mobilize for practical reasons, uh, I think that there's a kind of complicated psychology to that. You know, we have to start making sacrifices. There's really no sense of political agency choice uh, or alternative. Uh, I don't predict that that would, you know, cause any kind of big shift in Russian politics, but uh, among younger people, among mothers, family members, uh, relatives, of course, the young men who are in line to go serve on the front, uh, all of that becomes uh, uh, all of that becomes uh, a pressure point. Uh, and I think also, again, projecting six months ahead and 12 months ahead, if Russia doesn't make meaningful gains in Ukraine, which is maybe the most plausible outcome at the moment, this victory lap that Putin is taking, uh, you know, it starts to look less and less credible. Uh, yeah. I think at the moment it's working. Yes, the United States is in one of its periods of political turmoil, that's going to increase. The Middle East is in flames. Uh, you know, you can sort of project the war as kind of tipping over onto Russia's side. That's that's sort of credible at the moment. Uh, but a year from now, if things haven't changed much and the victory lap has already been taken, that becomes the kind of second problem for endless Putinism. So we're not in any sense there yet at some sort of moment of crisis or even of difficulty. Uh, but it's not as if the horizon is cloudless for Putin. I think it's a great segue to maybe talk about the, the elephant in the room or in the entire, you know, Ukraine war conversation. And that's the the state of, of both U.S. and, and European uh, aid. Now, maybe uh, I could just give a quick overview of. On the EU level, uh, the EU did not, uh, in its uh, December European Council meeting, approve the 50 billion euros uh, that they have uh, that it was on the table and was proposed for Ukraine. Uh, there is a high degree of confidence, I think, amongst European leaders that they'll be able to get that over the line early in the new year. There's a, another meeting set for February 1st. And I think what's important to note is that 50 billion is largely for the Ukrainian economy and Ukrainian budgetary support, also over uh, the course of uh, a number of years. On the U.S. side, uh, it, you know we're uh, we're recording this. It is Wednesday before uh, Christmas. Uh, you can you can feel Congress having already sort of departed uh, Washington D.C. Uh, so it doesn't look like it, it, there will be no deal in the Senate when it comes to uh, Ukraine, the Ukraine supplemental uh, and Israel funding and uh, border policy changes, at least before the end of the year. Now, that's going to be on the docket in the in the new year, but they also have to fund the government to keep the government open in the new year. So it's starting to, you know, the degree of pessimism you're starting to hear from Congress or from congressional watchers, I think is really growing about the ability of the U.S., to continue to provide military assistance. 
And Michael, you mentioned sort of, you know, the Europeans are, are, are doing a lot. I think they've provided, you know, they've broken a, a lot of boundaries in terms of what they were willing to do. You know, we see leopard tanks from Germany uh, in, in Ukraine. Yet when it comes to the kind of core basics to kind of maintain the fight on the front lines of the uh, of you know cluster munitions and and artillery, that's really coming from the United States. So and if this, you know, the U.S. has already the administration has already announced that if the funding uh, is not renewed, then we're starting to look at the end of U.S. Uh, military support for Ukraine. So I think let's talk about what that could mean, because that's increasingly no longer kind of a theoretical proposition, but one that uh, now I think if you were going to bet, you would probably bet against the U.S. providing, uh, continuing providing support, at least at the level that it was providing. And so what does that mean on the battlefield? And you can uh, uh, rebut anything I just said as, as well. Okay, so um, here's my view on it. First, it, it's important to make clear that there are things the United States provides. As you said, the Europeans simply cannot provide. It's not just a question of money. Ukraine needs a monthly amount of artillery ammunition just for defensive operations. And we know that rough damage bill is probably somewhere between 75 and 90,000 main caliber artillery shells per month, just looking at usage rates. Um, the United States provides the overwhelming majority of that monthly artillery ammunition supply and a significant amount of also air defense munitions, although there it's a bit more variegated with what Europeans provide for their own systems. So <laughs> just to make that abundantly clear, uh, Europe is increasing its production of ammunition, but it's not simply an issue of money. And the percentage of, I think, that of ammunition that, that Europe provides as part of that monthly package is quite low. Whatever number you're thinking of, think of a lower number, right? Um, the, the reality is that if, if assistance was cut off now, and at this point it's running on fumes, so I'm optimistic that there's going to be a package, right, when Congress comes back into session. Uh, but it's definitely going to be, you know, the money that Ukraine gets for all of 2024. So Ukraine's going to have to use it smartly and efficiently. And after that, it's not clear what Ukraine will see in 2025, right? Depends on elections and elections matter. That's why we have them at the end of the day in, mm -hmm. in democracies, right? And, and it's, but it's fair to guess that it's going to be a decreasing amount of assistance in terms of the, the financial value of it. So what this tells me is that we're kind of entering this critical period in coming year. I think that if suddenly assistance was cut off, Ukraine wouldn't begin losing tomorrow. But people should appreciate that already there's an extreme amount of shell hunger at the front line. You know, when I was there in July at the height of the offensive, Ukraine had in the south maybe roughly a two to one uh, artillery advantage uh, over Russian forces. By November, they were already in a clear deficit with Russia maybe having a three to one or more advantage and the irregular artillery ammunition supplies. And at this point, our assistance to Ukraine is literally running on fumes, right? We, I think they might expect one more package at most that's left uh, in terms of funding available, and that's it. People need to realize that this has real practical effects. And the debate on having Ukraine be a political football in the debate has very tangible effects on the front lines. Like People can drag it out here in D.C., but if they were on the front lines, they might see it a bit differently in terms of the impact that it has on sustainability of Ukraine's war efforts. So... Europe cannot replace the United States in this role. I don't think it will be that well positioned to replace the U.S. period, even if we're, we were to give it another year, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that uh, the good news here is that Ukraine can consistently in, increasingly offset its requirements via production of drones, of munitions for drones, and other systems that can reduce the, the load on artillery ammunition. 
but it would also need Western help to do that. Western financial resources, assistance in scaling up industrial production, and helping to shift more of the war effort to things that Ukraine can itself do in country. Because Ukraine has a lot of capacity and a lot of know-how, but this too will, will be, I think, part of the effort next year. Let, let me sort of uh, drill down a little bit on it, because it would strike me that if you're Ukrainian military officers and trying to plan for the next few months, it's, it would be incredibly difficult not quite knowing what level of, of support you're going to get. Is, so how how is Ukraine able to kind of plan for what's coming from Russia or to sort of lay out any sort of uh, broader operational plans when it comes to the, the war? So at this stage, Ukraine is shifting to the defensive because it has to. Um, it doesn't have the artillery ammunition to sustain offensive operations. No one can plan because they don't know how much artillery ammo they're going to get next week. So it's pretty hard to plan uh, operations if you don't know what resources you're going to have. And, and in general, Ukrainian forces are in need of reconstitution, right? After being five months on the offensive, they need to replace casualties, uh, fix issues with force quality. They're addressing right now looking at core issues, mobilization, and what the future sustainability of the war effort is to generate reserves and what have you. And also a lot has to be done about training. So there's there's a huge amount that the West can do that could have, I think, tremendous returns for fairly low investment on training Ukrainian forces and localizing training in Ukraine. But bottom line to your question, at this point, I think Ukrainians uh, do not know what to expect from us, right? They don't know what resources they're going to have. There's an irregularity of supply that has direct effect on combat operations day to day. And it's, of course, structurally structuring their choices, it's forcing the Ukrainian military into now focusing on a defensive fight to, to, to uh, try to trade as much as they can of the Russian forces who have much of the initiative through the winter. I, I'm certainly believing in the hope that Congress then comes back and authorizes a new supplemental package to carry the war effort through next year. Because if they don't, um, the results, I think, for Ukraine, I don't say, you know, would be catastrophic, but they would be quite, quite terrible in terms of the implications for how for how next year might go. Right. I mean, if, if anything, it would, you know, the, the optimism that I think we're seeing from the Kremlin is in part due to their kind of optimism about the inability of Congress to act. And if anything, I think it would probably prompt them to try to continue to sort of go on the offensive. I guess just Michael, one more or Mike, one more Mike and Michael, Mike, yeah. uh, one more sort of follow up question because of the casualties that you're, that Russia has sort of absorbed is your sense that their offensive capacity, you know, even if they're, you know, is, is, is highly uh, curtailed, uh, just given their uh, the 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 challenges that they have in training new forces and and in in conducting you know any sort of uh, offensive operation and, and the challenges that um, that entails. Yeah. So here's the two sides of the coin. They are regenerating offensive potential every so many months, and you saw that even while defending against this offensive, they were able to generate enough reserves, enough equipment, get enough ammunition to try to conduct their own offensive late fall, right? And you're going to see that again, I think, over the course of this winter and maybe later over the course of summer. Now, I think given their defense spending, what Maria spoke to, the Russian leadership probably thinks that next year is rather favorable to them, okay? And that's why they're so confident. And they're sort of stereotypically overconfident mm -hmm. for, for the Russian elite and think that they've essentially survived the worst and not also not thinking long-term about this war because you can see a path to how Ukraine 
husbands its resources, effectively defends next year, and then begins to rebuild the military advantage in 2025, right? If you think of next year as sort of a middle year in this war. Um, of course, it could also end up, you know, in a hurting stalemate. And, and to be clear, if the right choices aren't made, both in Ukraine, but also very importantly here, the conversation we were just having, Ukraine could begin losing the war. And people need to be cleared about that, too. I mean, Ukraine was going to fight on. And the will to fight is very much there, even if Congress doesn't pass a supplemental. That's why I said Ukraine's not going to lose the next day or the week after. Um, Ukrainians are going to fight on, but it will be an increasingly desperate fight. Michael, you have a, a book coming out on the, the origins of the war. Um, and I, I, I'm curious if now, you know, when you think back to the decision uh, that Putin made to sort of you know, press the button and launch this invasion, it strikes me as really important to try to understand his objectives and what he's trying to achieve, especially if we're in a situation in which suddenly the Ukrainian military is on the ropes because we've you know cut them off. Uh, what would Putin be after in that situation if uh, the military advantage really swings uh, swings to Russia's side? Well, I think there are two layers to the to the answer, and I think we have some of the evidence from the initial invasion, the scale of it, and the kinds of ambitions that we can associate with it. And <clears throat> to the degree that I can summarize, which is which is difficult because we don't have documents and, again, very good evidence, but I think a partition of the country was what Putin was aiming for to topple the government. Uh, I don't think to take all of Ukrainian territory, uh, but to roughly uh, absorb half of Ukraine into Russia, as he's attempted to do via the Russia constitution in the south of uh, of Ukraine. So we have that as sort of data points, and I think the hope is he could do that very, very quickly. Uh, and with that, in some respects, reconstitute uh, Europe uh, and make Russia one of the decisive players in the structure of Europe. Obviously, Ukraine is, is sort of first and foremost in, uh, in his imagination, I suspect, but there's a European dimension, and that's the second layer of it, I think, that we have to pay very close attention to. It's not um, as a few here and there have alleged, I think, a desire to take Russian troops to Poland or to the Baltics or to Berlin or to Paris. Uh, some Russian soldiers have written those sorts of phrases on their uh, on their uh, supplies. But that's, you know, I think a fantasy that doesn't especially interest uh, Putin. It would be to leverage this new position in Ukraine uh, to insert Europe, uh, Russia into the European security architecture and to capitalize, this is to go off of what Michael said a moment ago, if the word war were to turn very much against Ukraine, to capitalize on the loss of credibility for the United States. So NATO would mean something very different. It wouldn't disintegrate or disappear because of a lost war in Ukraine, but it would mean something very uh, different. And I think Russia would be eager to press any advantage uh, in that regard and perhaps to take advantage of gray zone issues that I know you, Max, and I have been thinking about for many years uh, on the periphery of NATO and just to make NATO look like a paper tiger, make it look weak, like make the United States look like it's just not capable of being in a meaningful, meaningful sense, the guarantor of security uh, in Europe. I think the stakes are sort of that high. Obviously, the humanitarian and human stakes of the war in Ukraine should be on our minds first and foremost. But the kind of international order stakes in Europe and also by extension, the sort of other theaters is uh, is something that we should think about. And it's a curious moment. I'll sort of conclude on this point where we can kind of sense how high the stakes are. I think we've had that sense since the beginning of the war. And yet the urgency that's there in our societies, the kind of slowness of Europe and uh, the U.S. turning Ukraine into a political football when it really should properly be a foreign policy challenge or opportunity or, 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 or issue, the lack of urgency is very 
odd. It has its roots, I think, in the media and, you know, sort of contributing factors, but it's, uh, it's a hard thing to try to understand. Right. It's, it sort of, if Putin were to sort of reverse the humiliation that in many ways Russia has experienced over the last couple of years, uh, it's not as if then he just sort of retreats and goes home and sort of accepts the fact that Russia has been sort of still very isolated from the international economy and has been treated as a pariah. And in some ways, I think it, what concerns me a bit, and I think this is true regardless of what happens on the battlefield, is that there's very little to deter Russia from many of the gray zone hybrid uh, actions that you know we were concerned about if, if election interference, but but of, of taking more kinetic actions against civilian infrastructure and undersea. To add one small point there, I mean, we've rightly celebrated Germany for liberating itself from its dependence to a large degree on, on, on Russian uh, energy. Uh, in a sense, we've celebrated ourselves for instituting uh, what was it the the sanctions regime from hell uh, in in 2020-22 and and uh, and thereafter? I think what we sometimes forget in this narrative is that exactly as these things are happening, Russia has liberated itself from the West. Its dependence on the West is much less uh, than it was. So Russia's political economy successes, such as they are, what Maria was describing uh, a moment a moment ago, are going to underwrite a much more autonomous foreign policy and probably a much more ambitious foreign policy and obviously a much more anti-Western foreign policy in the future, whether or not they do make big gains on the ground uh, in in Ukraine. It's a, it's a factor that we just have to keep in the forefront. Right. Yeah, I just want to come on Mike's point. I, I think part of the challenge is always we kind of often go from overestimating to underestimating Russia. And, and Mike's point is well taken that um, well, while the West has structurally changed its relationship with Russia, Russia has proven far more resilient than people expected, including those in the sanctions community, especially when it came to to defense and, and, and military output. And more importantly, you know, sometimes in the West, we do kind of look at the globe and we think like it's ours and we forget that China, Iran, North Korea are factors and they're increasingly growing factors in the sustainability of the Russian war effort, the Russian economy, Russian access to a whole host of components or technologies. And, you know, there's to be not to be global about, but there's a whole other part of the planet out there that's that that may not see the war the same way or may not be as actively involved or supporting Western sanctions that, that we have to keep in mind. Lastly, you know, whether what follows us is um, is more kind of I don't like the word hybrid and never have to be honest, you know that. But <laughs> but but these these types of things or more importantly, there's just a base issue where I think some people early on had sort of had a mission accomplished uh, uh, take on where we were in the war, that Russia had been strategically defeated, that the war is a strategic failure for Russia. And, I, and I'm seeing this narrative actually, again, come up most recently. And I don't think this is the best time for it, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, see, history will be the judge of who was strategically defeated and, and, and how to assess that. Uh, casting that, projecting that forward when you're when you're partway into a long war might not be the best the best approach. But uh, and so because of that, I think that there's a lack of urgency, and, and folks don't understand that. Um, you know, while this isn't the likeliest scenario, yeah, that there's still this war could still take a rather negative trajectory if they don't make the right choices and if they sort of you know uh, uh, tell themselves at night that that Russia has been strategically defeated, and so they don't need to take significant action uh, to invest in this war. And lastly, you have to think about the future of European security as well. This war is very much about Ukraine, but it's not just about Ukraine. So if Russia, if Russian elites don't feel that they were strategically defeated, if they feel that actually they were able to withstand the best that the West could throw at them, that they were able to outlast or exhaust the U.S. and key U.S. European allies, 
What does that mean for future European security? I mean, could you, without caricaturing and saying, like, yeah, the next day afterwards, Russian, R- Russia will want to invade Poland or, or something like that. I don't believe that either. Um, but what does it tell us about what the next decade, what the next decade looks like for European security? It's it to me, it's not a positive outcome. We'd be much better off managing an embittered, dangerous, but significantly weakened Russia that feels it's been defeated and you know you effectively defeated them than this other Russia that I just painted. I will quickly jump into, first of all, I absolutely agree with both Michaels. Uh, second thing, uh, first of all, consistent underestimation of Russian potential, I think, has been a feature of the Western foreign policy over the last decade. It didn't just start yesterday, and we, I think, have to acknowledge at this point that we are failing to detour and even at this point to contain. Uh, I'm hoping still there is more opportunities to contain going further, but for that to happen, I some radical rethinking of the way, of the basic premises on which the Western Poland policy has been unraveling, happening. Uh, I think it should should take place. I, I see some hopes in the current Western debate that's starting, but I, I'm afraid it's again a little too late. And the second dimension, uh, along with the challenges to the European security that Mike Kaufman has pointed out, uh, there's also, of course, the broad implications that in that that we already have witnessed this year a radical intensification of the international conflicts, right? There is Azerbaijan, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh situation. There is, of course, Palestine-Israel situation. And I would, it's kind of, it's hard to, as always in the international relations, to draw the direct causal link. But it seems that part, at least, of this dynamic is the perce- perceived weakening of the West, destruction of the West, the inability to cope uh, with Russia, uh, which, again, opens up plenty of opportunities for other actors. And of course, there's uh, much more aggressive actors there, like Iran, whose uh, defense industry is actually doing fairly well, considering the degree of the sanctions uh, it's been under, uh, which are much, much stronger than the sanctions that Russia has so far has experienced. So that uh, suggests actually that Russia will be able to maintain a degree of um, uh, fairly successful production at its own level. Maybe it's not going to be the, the most sophisticated type of weapon but it will be. On top, of course, of Iran, there's also China. And the signals that all of these actors are getting are certainly not positive. Well, well, now that we've, you know, depressed ourselves, <laughs> I think maybe uh, for, the, for, for the last sort of 15 minutes that we have, it, it does strike me that, that the situation Ukraine is facing it, uh, itself right now is challenging. Yet, if we operate in a world in which Congress comes back, passes uh, assistance, it also strikes me that 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 they have a lot of advantages still going into this war. And and Michael, I think, or Mike, you sort of outlined. I think what is I think still a fairly promising outlook for Ukraine. Twenty twenty four, I think, will be tough. But what we've seen from Russia, at least when it conducts offenses and tries to go on offense, is that it's not really able to execute. It loses a lot of 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 its uh, forces. And if Ukraine can sort of absorb that over the next year, rebuild its forces, um, uh, husband its resources, train its troops, then 2025 is looking a lot more promising, I would think, for for Ukraine militarily uh, at the very least. And I'm curious sort of how you see, you know, we talk about this being a long war. I'm curious how you see this sort of playing this uh, playing out in sort of a positive way, potentially for Ukraine. Yeah. So. I guess I see next year as very much a a turning point, a potential turning point. And the way I look at it is that um, there's still very much a theory of success out there for Ukraine. 
If Ukraine is able to effectively hold, that is, fortify, defend against Russian offensives at the peak of Russian defense spending and investment in their military, such that Russian leadership can see that despite everything they're putting into the defense industrial complex, uh, they're not able to attain even their minimal war aims. And we know what they are. It's to take the Donbass and to try to take control as much of, of the territories that they formerly annexed, right? They just can't issue those aims. Second, Ukraine uses next year to reconstitute its forces. That talks about like force quality, actually manpower, rotating brigades, solving training issues, the industrial capacity, production of key systems and drones and other things they need, munitions, and consolidation of the force. Because Ukraine has been the beneficiary of a lot of Western assistance, but this has created an entire veritable zoo of equipment of different types and in every single category. And this also requires up consolidation, maintenance, and increasing the capacity to uh, to actually repair it. And, and when you're there, you, you can actually, you can see, you'll be quite surprised by what Ukrainians can do already in terms of maintaining and repairing our equipment and, and even making entirely new parts for it. I've seen this myself. Um, and, and the third part of it is, is a strike part, which is Ukraine is steadily increasing its capacity, its indigenous capacity to build strike systems and to be able to conduct certain types of campaigns to target Russian critical infrastructure, Russian basing, Russian logistics. And can still create issues or dilemmas for the Russian military, even if the front line, it'll be difficult to move it. Why? Because let's be blunt, there aren't the resources for a major Ukrainian offensive next year, right? That's, that's a combination of issues with ammo and, and choices that were made or not made, let's say, over the last two years. Fine. But Ukraine can use next year effectively to set the conditions to retake the advantage. That's, that it's, in my view, it's workable. But it would require focusing on a long-term strategy. So the way I look at it is fundamentally, we, we are in the long game now. Much of this war had been subject to short-termism in planning in the West. And we've basically been going from one six-month plan to another. If you look at the offensive, it was principally a six-month plan from, from early this winter. And, and even back then, I was arguing, you know, back in Maine Foreign Affairs, my colleague Rob Lee, talking about beyond the offensive and saying, you know, this offensive by itself will not end or resolve the war. And very much at the end of this offensive, we will be, whether it's successful or not, we will be at some juncture like this. Mm -hmm. And it will require a long-term plan and long-term investment. And let's think about that now back in May before the offensive starts. Okay, well, let's think about it now that the offensive has ended, like at least. But but nonetheless, that's the conversation we need to be having. But the, the, the steady removal of short-term thinking creates the opportunity to develop a long-term strategy and to think about how you're actually going to sustain this war as a long-term effort and what are the things you need to do next year to effectively change this picture and to restore the capacity for Ukraine to attain its objectives in the war come late next year or come 2025, right? And you know, I'm not known for being Pollyannish or an optimist. Usually nobody, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not just guys, we're friends. You, you normally don't come to me for, for the most cheery assessment of, of, how, of how great everything is. So, so when I say that, that I do see uh, prospects for, um, for using next year successfully, I, I do see it and I do believe it. I don't know if we're going to get there, right? So only what I've seen from our own Congress here in Washington, D.C. over the last few months is not encouraging to an analyst. I don't know if that, um, even though we have the technological innovation, we have the financial capital, and we have all the advantages in the West. If you just look at the balance sheet, right? I mean, Mike, it's in fairness. If we, if we look at the overall balance of material, uh, material availability and potential and capacity in, in the West versus Russia, you would think that this is almost a no-brainer. 
but you see the political will and making decisions at the right time and all this are the critical factors. Let me just ask you also that there's been talk of uh, of Ukraine also doing its own mobilization of hundreds of thousands of additional uh, Ukrainian men being called up. To, uh, do you think that would make a difference? Is that something that you're looking uh, for as well? If Ukraine makes a decision on on doing what would I, I think not be a partial mobilization, but really a mass mobilization. So Ukraine's been mobilizing this entire time since the very beginning of the war. The issue for Ukraine is that Ukraine has first primarily been mobilizing older men, trying to keep younger folks uh, out of the war because they are Ukraine's future. They're the future of its of its economy and its demography. The, the problem with that is that Ukraine's also had significant losses over the course of the last two years. It's lost a fair amount of experienced soldiers and in initial force that it started the war with. And it's also dramatically expanded the forces fighting with as well. At this point, Ukraine needs to replace the losses over the past year of fighting. It also needs to look at the types of people that, that they are mobilizing. Because at the end of the day, for certain roles like infantry, for assault roles, you need younger men, bottom line. Um, you cannot fight. You cannot. If you cannot effectively prosecute those missions with men whose average age is in their early to mid forties, right? Um, not a knock against right. any <laughs> of us sitting here. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah, but but yeah. Once you're forty, you very quickly understand the difference between being forty and being in your twenties. So, yeah. um, and and so you know, there needs to be a look at uh, fixing force quality. There needs to be a look at just the manpower issue in general. And some hard choices regarding mobilization. I won't speak to the numbers, the 450 to 500,000 number that Zelensky mentioned that the general staff provided or where that comes from. My guess is that the number of, of, of men that they need all depends relative to task and the requirements, right, to what they're trying to achieve. But it's clear that Ukraine also needs to look at mobilization issues and, and the force quality issues and train the force in general. Last point on this, you know, I spent a lot of time with units who simply have never been off the line, like brigades who had not been off the line this entire time. And in order to rotate brigades, you need to have someone to rotate them with, right? You can rotate one battalion with another off the line, but they just rotate the reserve area a couple miles from behind the forward positions. That's not the same thing. And, and many officers only started getting vacations this summer, to be clear. Now there's a policy of, of vacations being allowed, but what you need to appreciate is that overtime of force becomes exhausted. And you need to address that issue. Mm-hmm. And now that the offensive is over, I do think, along with defenses and other issues, it's good to see that this conversation has emerged in Ukraine and has taken taking shape publicly, that you also need to address the issue of rotating the force and ensuring that it doesn't get exhausted to maintain combat effectiveness. Great. Uh, Maria, I want to turn to you about kind of future prospects of the Russian economy as we look out over the next year. Uh, I think Mike has always been a, a sanctions pessimist. I've always been, I think, more of a sanctions optimist. Uh, and and right now, Mike may be slightly winning that conversation. But it does strike me that uh, Russia is running its economy quite hot. We're seeing inflation start to go up. There's labor challenges. Now, if Russia has to do another partial mobilization and assuming Putin waits until after his, his you know, historic uh, election, um, it, it strikes me that that will put a, a lot of strain on the Russian economy. So how do you see this sort of playing? Let's let's take the optimistic view uh, that Ukraine is able to hold uh, uh, as Russia goes on the offensive for much of this year. Russia probably doesn't gain very much. Maybe it loses quite a lot in terms of manpower and, and, and resources. 
where do you think the, the Russian economy will be uh, in in six months, a year from now, or what are the vulnerabilities there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so certainly, um, when it comes to pure uh, material factors, like how much does it cost for Russia to run this war? Uh, Sergey Alexashenko, among other uh, economists, has actually estimated that Russia can uh, pull it off forever. Uh, definitely, at the very least, for within the foreseeable future. And uh, given Putin's international ambition that we've discussed here, uh, he'd probably want to. Uh, having said that, as you said, of course, there are other factors that are accumulating. They're not decisive in any way at this point, but certainly some of the some of them at some point may skyrocket. The first one is certainly inflation. In general, for the lack of the external investment, Russia is only maintaining its economy by uh, essentially some sort of Keynesian uh, policy of uh, investing its own resources into the economy, which uh, always leads to the inflation. Russia is no exception. Uh, the official numbers of inflation are very unreliable, uh, but it's certainly, uh, the unofficial number certainly above uh, 10%. Lots of complaining about the price of eggs. And certainly uh, some of the problems are already emerging, such as disappearance of eggs or other items. Uh, That is also combined with so-called regressive import substitution, where Russia is unable to get the best possible uh, articles uh, at the given uh, price because of the sanctions. So they have to find other ways to import something that's potentially inferior in quality and also more because of all the supply chains that they have to uh, restructure. In the long term, that certainly might be accumulating and contributing to the war uh, fatigue. Uh, there is also uh, a less notable exhaustion of ongoing exhaustion of the rainy day funds uh, that's also happening. So, for example, the National Wellbeing Fund is uh, slowly getting eroded and it's unclear how much more it will um, uh, take until it's uh, totally gone. And while the Kremlin does have the resources right now, as we have discussed, due to very favorable energy dynamic, in the long term, especially if there is a shock, let's imagine something happens in the oil price is dramatically full. Uh, this is where there will be a lot of problems for the Kremlin all of a sudden because they just don't, no longer have these resources that they accumulated. That is partly because of the sanctions. Uh, for example, the f- f- freezing of the uh, Central Bank of Russia reserves. Uh, they do contribute because now Russia has no resources to maintain ruble and it keeps fluctuating to the extent that they can maintain. They have to use the resources they are now accumulating. Uh, so it's not ideal. Uh, essentially, if there is a shock uh, economic shock, it will be a problem and it might create the chain of the unforeseeable events, which will be um, uh, problematic for the regime. But then, of course, there's labor deficit that Mike pointed out. There is really uh, un- unprecedented low-, low levels of unemployment and, of course, that contributes to the limitation and further overheats the economy. Uh, last but not the least, um, uh, this also created this uh, perhaps a war economy. It's not a really militarized economy in the Soviet mm-hmm. sense, but it does, the, the economy really run to a large extent on the military expenses. And that creates this trap for the Kremlin that it really can't stop the war even if they if they wanted to, because then there's no any other re- kind of factor that will uh, create the GDP growth, that will kind of create this push for the economy. So essentially, they, they trap themselves in this situation, which potentially uh, can skyrocket. None of these factors, as we have discussed, is catastrophic at the moment, but they do have this quality of accumulating. And uh, say in Argentina, we've seen a decade of huge inflation, which was really problematic for in the long term for the governments, right? So it does tend overall to accumulate and create problems. Uh, Having said that, 
probably we should not be basing our hopes on just this analysis. And I want to echo uh, Michael Kaufman in his call also for the importance of rethinking and actually coming up uh, with a long-term strategy in the West. Because one of the problems, I think, one of the reasons why we're having all this, these conversations is the lack of long-term strategy on the side of the uh, US and the well, European administrations. Like, how do we, they really see this war going? What it is that they're trying to achieve for Ukraine? And once they have that clear goal in mind, maybe then they can commit uh, certain resources, given how important this war is. Max, I have a summing up sentence for you. It's a paraphrase of the Austrian humorist Karl Kraus. And this, you know, you could take his words and rework them and say that the situation in the West is hopeless, but not serious. And the situation in Ukraine is serious, but not hopeless. Uh, And I think that may sum up our conversation today. So if the West can become more serious, it renders the situation in Ukraine less less hopeless. I think that's a, 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 a great a short summary. You, you saw the time uh, ticking away. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a, a really great way to encapsulate it. That in some ways, continuing to support Ukraine is not, you know, that's not causing our price of eggs to, to increase. It's having very little, almost no impact on uh, on the United States. In fact, it's all the money that is spent, at least on the military side, or almost all of it is going into uh, U.S. defense production and expanding U.S. defense production, which supports American jobs and actually expands our defense industrial base, which is seen as one of the major things that uh, have happened. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there. I, I want to thank Mike Kaufman, Michael Kimmage, Maria Segovia uh, for, for being here for what I think was a really uh, fascinating, interesting conversation. Um, and I also want to just note that for all of you watching uh, online, uh, I want you to take out your phones and please subscribe to our podcast, Russian Roulette, where we have these sorts of conversations all the time, as well as our sister podcast, The Eurofile, where we sort of break down what is the hell is happening in Brussels and whether they're going to be able to get their act together on on Russia funding and on Ukraine funding and, and Ukraine ascension. So uh, please subscribe to those podcasts. And thank you so much for, for joining us today. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.